You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. That you would indeed tell us the story of Jesus, Lord. Even as we um, listen to my words, Lord, would you take my words and let them be your word to us this morning? Would Jesus be glorified in his name? Amen. Believe it or not, but I am not a big fan of Broadway style musicals. I do love theater, but I tend to be a snob about it. I prefer to have a cathartic experience over something that's merely entertaining. And I started to make some exceptions to this rule, though, when I was in college because I had an incredible opportunity to see something on Broadway. My big sister, for my birthday, bought us tickets to see a revival of Annie Get Your Gun. Bernadette Peters was such a good performer as Annie Oakley, that she was able to move me. She captured my attention. I was laughing and even crying at this comedy from the cheap seats in the balcony. One song still sticks with me years later. In this song, Annie Oakley is verbally sparring with her love interest, Frank Butler. And this song is called Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. And it has the two of them competing, saying, Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Annie and Frank are grasping at one-upping each other, as if they were children trying to push each other off of a big rock as they play King of the Hill. Well, today's gospel lesson sees a similar kind of immaturity as the disciples, James and John, approach Jesus with stupid request number 437. These two brothers are in Jesus' innermost circle of followers, and they ask then, therefore, to be seated at the right and left of Jesus' royal throne in glory. They wanted the highest seats of honor and power in closest proximity to the king. Well, at least they believed that Jesus was a king. They knew that he is and was the long-awaited Messiah. They might even have understood that his self-designation as the Son of Man was a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, where the prophet says that there was one like a Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And somehow... They believe this. That's wonderful. Um, And they also seem to believe that as they were walking together toward the royal city of Jerusalem, that would be the moment when they entered the city that Jesus would enter into the possession of his kingdom. As number one and number two, maybe, out of the three of Jesus' inner three disciples, he had an inner circle even uh, closer to him than the twelve, they might have known that the uh, other third, Peter, was recently put in his place by Jesus. He had gotten something wrong and Jesus had corrected him. So maybe James and John think that they're at the top of the game, of their own game. Now finally, those two would be eligible for those two honored places at Jesus' right and left. With Peter out of the running, maybe they think that they are the two best disciples. We know better as we hear them. We know better as we read and we wince 
to have them ask this question because we remember and we understand what Jesus had just told them in the few verses prior to today's passage. If you have your Bible open, you'll be able to follow along with me in Mark chapter 10, verse 31, a few short verses before today's passage. Jesus had wrapped up his teaching following their encounter with the rich young ruler by saying that many who are first will be last and the last first. And then next, on the road to Jerusalem, in verses 32 and 30, through 34, Jesus predicts for the third time that he will be arrested, tried, but uh, killed, and then on the third day he will rise. This is the third time he has made this kind of death prediction. And when he had made his second prediction back in chapter 9, Mark tells us that the disciples did not understand what he was saying and that they were even afraid to ask what he meant. Clearly, nothing has changed by chapter 10. Jesus, as always, is kind to James and John, patient with their sinful ignorance. He tries to point out more explicitly that the kingdom will not be all sunshine and puppy dogs. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, as he says, to drink the cup of God's wrath and to drown in a deluge of suffering. That is what he means when he asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I will drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? Well, the response of the other ten disciples only makes me chuckle. They share the error of James and John. They're just mad that they didn't think to ask Jesus first. All of them together are arrogant, quarrelsome, jealous children. Again, they're playing a game of king of the hill. Jesus instead teaches them an alternate value scale in the kingdom of God, where whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. As one commentator writes, Christian position is only a prize to be grasped at by those who are ignorant of its nature and its cost. My father, also a pastor, is famous for saying, anyone who wants to be a bishop deserves it. (laughs) St. Paul picks up Jesus' theme when he urges the Philippian Christians in his letter not just to serve each other in physical labor, um, acts of love and service, but also to serve each other by causing their wills to give way to each other in the face of conflict. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate picture of Jesus' humility and service is found in his obedience to death, even such a death as a crucifixion. In John's gospel, this kind of death is understood as the hour of Jesus' glorification. What a powerfully backward sense of glory, where Jesus' earthly throne is the place of his execution. He is surrounded there not by two honored disciples, but by two condemned criminals. Jesus' idea of royal glory means not coercing and tyrannizing and snatching power, but giving and giving with such royal bounty 
that in the end, one's very life is given. Jesus knows this. Jesus states the purpose of his mission. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The giving of Jesus' life is the paying of a ransom, the paying of a debt to secure the release of those who are captive to sin and death. St. Peter writes that we are indeed ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, in saying this, is echoing Isaiah's beautiful prophecy about the suffering servant, which we read for our first lesson today. Jesus knows that he will voluntarily give up his life as a sacrifice offered in the place of the guilty, as an exchange, specifically so that our guilt would be removed. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus bore the sin of many. Such selfless love puts us to shame. We might think that we serve, we'll say, oh, but see on my schedule, here are the times when I serve so-and-so and and I do thus and such. Or maybe um, we think, well, I'm always serving. I'm serving everyone, especially as women. We might think, well, I don't have a moment where I'm not serving. I'm serving my husband. I'm serving my children. I'm serving my grandchildren. I'm serving here and there and everywhere. Well, service that is not service voluntarily given totally from the heart without any sense of reward without any looking for any accolades in this earthly life is true service. Anything else is a simple rag of our own self-righteousness. And we see this heartfelt unwillingness to serve in our closest relationships, unfortunately. There's no mistake that Irving Berlin wrote anything you can do, I can do better for a man and woman who were involved romantically. Long before I was married, I had the odd situation of finding myself in the back seat while friends or siblings and their spouses uh, argued, or, or maybe didn't argue, but talked very politely about decisions that they were going to make. And I found, I found myself listening for what was going on underneath. Every single decision seemed to involve um, some kind of power play um, or a, a give and take. Every, every give and take um, was surrendered with a caveat or a condition. Um, It was hard to find true service. Every once in a while it was there, but I saw a lot of human flesh. In some marriages, um, it might be that he is the king of the castle, but she's the queen of the kitchen, and don't you dare load the dishwasher incorrectly. As women, we might say, well, wear the neck if he's the head, but I'll get him back some way, one way or another. We like to pick the contests we think that we can win, We like to one-up each other. And when we do win, sadly, we lord it over each other. That kind of belittling, that kind of open strife, excuse me, or even worse, what I would call the controlled cold war, is normal. In marriages, sadly, it's normal because it's a symptom of the curse of sin. And yet, for us who put our trust in Jesus Christ, there is hope. There's hope for us. One of my favorite books on marriage is written by Mike Mason. 
And he says that a truly Christian marriage is at best a sort of contest in which, in what might be called one-downmanship, a backward tug-of-war between two wills, each equally determined not to win. I like that. A backwards tug-of-war, one-downmanship. Yes, wouldn't that be amazing if that's what not only our marriages but every relationship that we had was like. Truly in Christ, um, this is not just true for those who are married, but it's true for un, uh, those who are not married, but also have close relationships, friendships, um, relationships with parents or nieces or nephews or work, uh, work colleagues. Because for those who are married and for those who are unmarried, this selfless humility is not characterized by the relationship itself. In other words, you don't have to be married to experience the beautiful phenomenon of what Christian relationships could be like even as you don't have to be married also, to experience that curse of selfishness. Well, how do we get this? Well, we laugh. We'll look at Annie Oakley and we'll laugh, or we'll roll our eyes at James and John and the other disciples, or we wince when we think about conflicted marriages. But the honest truth is um, every single one of us, though we might judge the other for what we see in them, every single one of us is guilty of grasping self-aggrandizement. When accolades, power, or status come our way, we think we deserve them. And when we are deprived of them, we complain and think that they ought to have been ours by right. If we're great in the kingdom of God, then we tell ourselves that we're doing our best to serve and that it's all we can do so God will approve us based on our effort or our seeming intentions. Conversely, if we don't have a lot of sway within the body of Christ, then we look at those who do and we criticize. We complain, proudly thinking in our own hearts or in conversations with others that we could do a better job. If we think that we can obey Jesus' upside-down notion of greatness in the kingdom in our own strength, then we are deluding ourselves. We can no more serve with a humble heart than we can dance on the ceiling. God knows we cannot. God knows we cannot, and that is why he gives us this beautiful example of Jesus Christ, the perfect servant who served even to the point of his own death. And, and yet Jesus and God both know that this command alone is not enough. The example of Jesus is not enough to re- reverse our entire human fleshly value system. Jesus there, when he said what true service would look like, he knew that he was walking to Jerusalem in order to give the gift of his ultimate sacrifice, knowing that his death would be not only the example of this kind of service, but the means by which his people would be bought back from a life of one-upmanship. Again, Jesus is not just the example to be followed, but his death, his very death, frees us transforming us from self-seeking graspers who will step on anyone else to get what we want and then lord it over them when we have it to selfless servants who seek nothing for ourselves. Jesus paid the price for our one-upmanship to remove the penalty of our sin, yes, but also to release us from the power of sin today. By his grace, we can experience this freedom and redemption even today. Anything we think we can do, he can do better. He can do all the things that we can't do at all. 
Yes, he can. No, he can't. Yes, he can. No, we can't. Yes, he can. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, yes, yes, you can, and yes, yes, you have. Thank you for your death. Give us that mind that is ours through faith in you, that spontaneous selflessness that truly deserves to serve those around us. Though we can't on our own, though we cannot, we cannot, we cannot, yet, Lord, in you, by your grace, because you can, we can too. And so we ask, Lord, that you would transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.